0: a very good morning to you. We're live from London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. In a moment, we'll be checking in with our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. He's on the line in Tokyo. And my panellists, Tessa Shishkiewicz and David Badanis, are dissecting the week's main newspaper stories. Tessa, what have you spotted?
1: Well, it's so uh, gripping what happens today. For example, that the uh, former prime minister of Britain, Mrs. Truss, comes out now with a big essay on how the left-wing economic establishment brought her down.
0: Heaven help us all. Thank you for that, Tessa. We'll
1: be getting the latest from Thailand too.
2: Saadi Ka from Bangkok. This is Gwen Robinson, and I'll be updating you shortly with the latest developments in Thailand and beyond.
0: It's the 5th of February, 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a very warm welcome to you uh, if you've just tuned in on Monocle on Sunday. Tyler's on his travels, so it's me, Emma Nelson, behind the microphone here in London. We'll be hoping to catch him on the line from Tokyo in a little while. But first, I'm delighted to say that we're basing everything cozily in Studio One here at Midori House with my guests, Tessa Shishkiewicz, UK correspondent for the Austrian magazine Profil, and by the author, David Badanis. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. First, first, time, for the, first time for Monocle on Sunday for you, Mr. Badanis. Absolutely. Delighted to have you with us. And you've done this a couple of times before, Tessa. So yes. we'll have a little bit of fun and games. How have your weeks been?
1: Busy, I have to say. <laughs> because we had three years of Brexit uh, celebrations, or rather not celebrations, I think, in this country. Mm, there is a little bit of sense of morning after. There is a great <laughs> sense of morning after and me as an Austrian citizen with settled status here, I'm watching this with sort of ongoing, you know, discomfort about it, a pr- this project that goes so wrong and nobody dares to do anything against it. It's
0: a funny thing, isn't it, that from the point of view if you're British and you're stuck in it, then you're stuck in it and you just have to sort of like run through the wall. Um, but if you are st- if you are a European na- Euro- Union member and you're watching this but you do have the you know the the ticket to stay here what's it like
1: well, of course, it's it's true. What you are insinuating is that we can come and go. We, can, we are part of the European yeah. Union, um, uh, in, in, in not only in nationality, but also in spirit. What I always find when I come back here now to Britain, and you have such an interesting debate going on I- within the European Union now about all the things happening globally. And um, there's this exchange in every radio program, Uh, On the continent about what Paris thinks, what Berlin thinks, what Vienna thinks or whatever. And then you come back and here it's only about Britain, Britain, Britain and how Britain reacts to the war and how Britain reacts to something. And it's so much more limited now than it used to be. And it's so sad for... Britain but also for the EU.
0: So for the for, so if you are sitting listening to the radio in Paris and Berlin what kind of n- narrative are you hearing? Well, while we're getting this one track narrative about the British,
1: well it's much more uh, collaborative on the continent, you know, because it's important if Scholz speaks to Putin or if Macron speaks to Putin and who is trying to do what. And they're trying to find common solutions. You know, there's this usually EU wrang- wriggling and wrangling and who is doing what, but it's it's just everyone is trying to find solutions together. And here now we're discussing to abolish all the EU-generated laws of the last 47 years. And you think like, these laws are good laws. They brought good consumer protection standards and all sorts of stuff. Yeah? And now this is that's the subject that is going on here. And I find it so limited. Mm, it
0: is a strange narrative because arguably those laws were Play, put in place to avoid any race to the bottom and yet yes. here the United Kingdom is rushing to yeah. it but we're talking about this sort of like the ab- abolition of the European convention of human rights or adherence by the by the by the British in a minute. David, What's your what are your thoughts on this one?
3: Uh, my thought is that this is a wonderful uh, case study for future um, uh, university <laughs> classes on the developments of authoritarianism. Authoritarian states, they always want two things. One, magical thinking where you have a single, simple solution, it'll solve all your problems. Just do one single thing, nothing's complicated. The other thing is to have an enemy. If you have a good external enemy, authoritarians really like that, keep people scared. Europe has been perfect for uh, authoritarian groups in Britain. It's a single solution. Everything will be magnificent afterwards with plenty of money for the NHS, as we have been assured uh, more than once on buses. And we have a great external enemy. It turns out that the magical thinking is wrong and the uh, enemy is not entirely uh, from without. But that doesn't get in the way of popularity.
0: Okay, thank you very much indeed for that. Let's head to Tokyo now to join our editorial director, Tyler Brulé. He's in the middle of his Asia trip. Uh, hello, Tyler. Um, we've been reading your column this morning. Is all well? And in- what did you end up putting in your suitcase?
4: Yeah, well, good morning, Emma. Good morning, uh, guests, and good morning, listeners. Uh, it was very limited. I mean, if you read my column, it was it was both a challenge, but um, I think I've managed to, uh, to, to succeed uh, because... Yeah, as uh, you're, you're somewhat highlighting, I think I, I felt sort of a little bit out of shape when it came to that proper whirlwind, uh, long-haul trip where you're in multiple uh, climactic zones. Uh, you're coming from Seoul, where it was below zero, Tokyo hovering around zero. And then you have to jump to, well, in this case, on to Taipei and to Hong Kong and to Bangkok, and to Singapore, it, of course, gets progressively warmer. Um, so it, it does present one or two challenges when you have to cover ground um, and hopefully, not uh, check your luggage as well.
0: No, that—that is arguably the most irritating thing: is checking your luggage. in. I know that we've both been in check-in, and you've breezed through with your with your lovely olive suitcase, which which goes everywhere. And I've just been lugging something desperately cumbersome into the into the check-in thing. It, it it's a it's a sort of state of mind that not having to check any luggage in, isn't it?
4: It is. It is, uh, and it, it does require some some limbering up. But uh, but you also have to remind yourself as well that. God created uh, laundry machines and 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 hotel services for a reason. So they're they're there to be used. So I think the notion of having to pack, you know, fourteen pairs of underwear uh, and, and and multiple uh, costume and outfits changes are not really necessary. So I said my my solution is I just I pack as if I'm traveling for a long weekend. I'm packing for four days, even though I'm traveling for for much longer. Um, of course, with you know with maybe a, a little bit of uh, warmer weather gear uh in the mix as well because yeah then then of course you can use the hotel laundry along the way and does it come- provided of course you know it, it it functions well. You have to be in of course a place which when they say it's gonna be back by six, it's gonna be back by five thirty.
0: That's what you absolutely need. Does it leave room for any purchases though?
4: Well let's let's see. <laughs> uh, I I will I'll be in Midori House, I believe I'm on, on the twentieth and twenty first. So uh Hopefully, you can um, assess then
0: with an extra bag. I suspect, um, Tyler, where you are now in Tokyo, ranging around, and it's what it's your second trip in a couple of couple of months now. How's how's Tokyo doing? Uh, because we've all been looking at a country which has been almost from the outside. It looks as if it's been too scared to open up again.
4: Well, this has been a part of the challenge, and and I think on one side, uh, many Japanese are are very happy that uh, maybe the country is in this current state where. You think going into the pandemic, you think about 2019, uh, early early 2020. This was you know, a country which, of course, it was the, the Olympics were, were around the corner at that point. Um, and there was a lot of complaint, a lot of soul searching, uh, a lot of uh, questions uh, around the government of the day. Was it moving just too fast in terms of chasing uh, tourism and tourism at every level? Was it not? Was it focusing too much on mass tourism? Uh, versus maybe bringing more upmarket guests into the country, but of course we saw that Japan really sort of you know raced to the top um, in in the Asia tables uh, in terms of of really being a destination that was welcoming to to all, and it was a bit of a shock. It was a shock to the system for so for so many in Japan. Uh, of course, the industry loved it, and we saw a boom in new hotels opening up, etc. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic came, and I think many Japanese have been quite happy to have the country back to themselves. It's you know, it feels very much like Japan of the late '80s, uh, or early '90s, uh, you, you could say. But of course, there's you know, then there's of course the follow-on problem to that. Of course, they have built up this massive infrastructure for tourism, and uh, there are you know, so many hotels, and you see a government which is. Is throwing open its doors. It, it wants people to come back, but I think the challenge is you come to a country where ninety-eight percent of people are still wearing masks outside, and there's you know plexiglass in the food hall everywhere, uh, at, uh, at at Isatan. so All of the things that we love about Tokyo, and the, and many of the reasons why Japan, uh, you know, and Tokyo in particular is so loved is because it has this this snap and metabolism to it. And right now, it's you really feel it's it's not quite back where where it was, but Many might be happy with that, but I don't think if you're a big hotel owner or running a restaurant, maybe you're you're so thrilled.
0: It's it's an exciting moment, though, if you're coming to Japan to see to see a city which is clearly an incredibly global place. But obviously, the the way that the the city functions is like nowhere else on earth, is it? So does this now become the the moment when we go?
4: Well, I, I think smart people. Uh, you know should should be booking now I think you know, if if you 've ever been to japan and i 'm- tra- 'm traveling with a colleague and you know his his mind is completely blown by everything he sees, and so I think all of the excitement of japan if you don 't know it that well is of course is is very much there and uh, I, you, you do feel that even places that look like they were shuttered when I was here in in may places have reopened there's certainly a bit of a bit of life, but there's still a sense of reserve because even though of course you know throughout this period a little bit like sweden you know there was nothing in terms of uh, that was sitting on the law books in japan that was going to prevent you uh, from doing anything this is all about social guidance and and of course the, the social pressures that come with it uh for people to abide by all of the various rules which they continue to do in the same way anyone has been to japan i mean you can, it can be midnight uh, or two in the morning, and if it's a red light and you're a pedestrian, you still don't run across the street. And that, of course, is what has been a, a governing, I think, much of the feeling and the spirit off the back of, 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 of the pandemic. Uh, and so I think that many are saying, well, when is that moment going to happen now? Sort of unofficially or officially, the, the virus will be downgraded uh, to a cold common flu um, come March. And everyone says this will be a point when we get close to Golden Week. Of course, this is an incredibly important time for tourism, for domestic tourism in Japan, that this will be the moment uh, that, that things open up.
0: Isn't it strange? Uh, strange we'll we have we talk to wait about- and see isn't it strange that we're talking about covid again we haven't talked like this for what for, for, for ages and ages and ages and it's a it's a sign actually that just how how divided the world still is on on this issue now moving on to where you're going next i mean you you i i have no idea who, who sorted out your schedule they must be lying under a, under a table with a damp cloth on their heads at the moment because it's what taipei hong kong bangkok singapore
4: it is yes off to off to taiwan next and and again a country which is only recently uh, opened up. So it's going to be, you know, this. it'll be very, very interesting to uh, yeah do the numbers, do the thoughts and reflections on all of this. And that's a part of the reason why I'm on this trip is to uh, see how all of these cities are recovering. And and particularly at a time when there's so many question marks about, you know, multinational companies, who's going to go back to, to China. We've, of course, heard so many horror stories about, uh, families, and not just Chinese families, but also expat families, people who have been assigned by their company to to work in Shanghai, to work in Shenzhen, um, who also managed to get out, who's absolutely you know, never going back. Um, and this has, of course, created a race between Seoul, between Tokyo, uh, Bangkok, Singapore as well, to, to really jockey for HQs or regional headquarters, to jockey for talent right now as well. That's part of what I want to look at. I want to hear it firsthand from government uh, also from of course the private sector as well and just try to get a sense of, as, as to how prepared are these cities because we can look at tax incentives we can look at all kinds of perks but at the end of the day you also want to be you're bringing potentially your family with you uh, you want to be able to to function in a city um, and it's it, you know it's interesting just a, before going into this, this interview, I've been hearing about um, you know, the uh, yeah authoritarianism um, and, and why the, the notion of a single narrative is, is a delight to many in government. Uh, and of course, we've seen a little bit around the corner from Japan for sure.
0: Um, right. So we now have you know this huge list of things to do. What have you noticed in terms of what people are now wearing? Because this is obviously this is often a <laughs> yeah, but, a mean, call, what's got your eye
4: masks. Masks aside, <laughs> uh, no. I was going to say we all should have in- we should have invested in. Uh, I know you like the color olive. As is our our uh, our bureau chief here in Tokyo, Fiona Wilson. And I think she actually owns one of these coats. But I was I was just standing outside having a coffee, Emma, and I just noticed you know when there's something that takes hold, and it is the olive duvet, probably just below the knee, padded, slightly a line. So it's, it's, it's like a sleeping bag. It's like a green sleeping bag with snaps. Um, it comes in various ways. It's chilly in Tokyo today, but it was incredible how many different versions of one coat uh, there was. So yes, if we were in the business of, of making uh, Cordura, any nylon, and maybe if we had a larger goose or duck farm, we'd totally be in the money right now. Can we?
0: Can we just briefly touch on the on the on the puffer coat? I know that uh, Sophie Grove uh, of Confect Magazine is is not a fan. Um, I am not a fan style wise, but I know how warm it keeps me. I have one of those olive puffer coats, um, and the, the, it has sustained me for years and years and years. Style wise, though, they're not terribly pretty.
4: Well, I think this just It depends. I think there was definitely a sartorial scale as well, because you can have the puffer coat, which, of course, you see the quilting. I would say most, you know, most of what is being featured on the streets in Japan, all of the quilting is on the inside, and 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 you have a a yeah a a seamless uh, stretch of of fabric uh, on on the outside. So more parka, maybe a little bit more trench. Uh, in in cuts. I think Sophie would approve of of most of what we're seeing on the streets of uh, Tokyo. But just remarkable that, uh, yeah. And then I guess the other thing that I did notice as well, I think we're finally seeing the end of the sneaker boom. So this is maybe not great news to a lot of the luxury companies, which are still turning out tons of pairs of trainers on hormones. Um, But uh, just serving footwear um, in a stretch of Aoyama, I I sort of felt the sense of relief that people were wearing proper loafers, proper brogues, proper heels, um, really sort of footwear that uh, has, you know, has not come off of, um, yeah, which is in in one thing, in one, on one level, all headed for landfill.
0: I think you might need a bigger suitcase. Tyler Brillet, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Tokyo. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Let's bring back our uh, panelists. Anyone here in possession of an olive coat or a pair of sneakers?
1: I'm, I'm guilty of both, I'm afraid. think so. <laughs> Lots of other sins that we can confess to in clothing things, but not olive coat.
0: Absolutely. How about you, David Bodanis? I don't think I've actually ever seen you in a coat. Uh,
3: uh, the, uh, it turns out uh, 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 humans are, tend to be uh, warm-blooded, uh, but Bodan, Bodani, my extended family, we're, we're hot-blooded. Okay. Uh, so in winters, we're often seen around. We, we're detected by thermal imagery from uh, uh, high-flying Chinese and, and other satellites. Um, I, 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 I feel, some people feel the cold. I, I'm kind of the opposite. I had hot flushes starting at age 12.
0: Is that why the, uh, is that why the police helicopters are always hovering very over Primrose Hill? Very
3: often. It's a, well, it's a rough neighborhood to begin with.
0: <laughs> They're spotting, what, uh, marijuana factories in Badana going for, going for yomps around the hill?
3: There's uh, some people walk around with the T-shirt, Hardest Man in Hampstead. And okay. You watch out for them.
0: <laughs> right. Let, you mentioned the balloon. Um, so the United States authorities are trying to um, have shot down this Chinese spy balloon.
1: It's called weather balloon.
0: Apologies. I'm so sorry. Apologies to our Chinese listeners. Uh, it was not a spy balloon. It's a weather balloon. Um, and they're trying to find bits of the Chinese weather spy balloon uh, in the sea at the moment. David, what are your thoughts on... I mean, if I were a spy, I'd try not to do it with a massive balloon. I don't know about you. I'd try and be a little more subtle.
3: Uh, it, uh, there's, uh, th- there's two possibilities. One is there's an insidious plot to irritate America and mess up uh, uh, improved relationships by sending over this irritating balloon. It's a totally unnecessary on security reasons. There's perfectly good American satellites over China and Chinese uh, satellites over America. So all the information is already there. So one possibility, it's malicious, trying to mess things up. The other possibility is massive bureaucratic error that it was supposed to be somewhere else and went there. Now, we always know that every all our opponents are perfect and neat and, and exact, while we ourselves, both are within our bodies and within our families and within our companies, are totally messed up and lucky if anything Ever works to plan. Somewhere between the two is the reality.
0: How can you accidentally send a massive weather spy balloon to the Easy. United States?
3: Uh, uh, you, you can have it supposed to be floating around off the uh, west coast, or it can be um, uh, somewhere somewhere else. And uh, uh, up in the atmosphere, there's terrific winds. You know when you fly from like New York to London, and they first start to tell you how to uh, fasten a seatbelt, assuming that nobody in an airplane has been in an automobile in the last 73 years. Uh, and, you know, and if there's the jet wind going, it shoots an incredibly big, powerful airplane, no longer the 747, shoots it at high velocity to London. So the jet wind's terrific. So it's, and, and the jet wind is kind of uh, um, narrow. It's a little conveyor belt in the sky. It was first discovered by somebody who was flying over the American Midwest at 110 miles an hour. And he looked down and the ground wasn't moving. And his speedometer was moving, the propeller was moving, ground wasn't moving. He was in this tiny little narrow conveyor belt. So you can't get caught in uh, narrow conveyor belts. John Le Carré was once asked, who wrote the spy who came in from the cold and stuff, if the plots in his book could ever work, where there's a, a double cross and maybe a double-double cross. He said, inconceivable. The paperwork would never get through in time. We can't <laughs> plan things that complex.
0: Wonderful. And it's, that's sort of quite reassuring, isn't it, Tessa, that this is well, I don't know. I mean, a little bit a bit of me found, has obviously found this story quite delightful because anything involving a balloon has a has a certain sense of levity to it. If they yeah. like sent a massive scary plane over us and that that would be one thing, but at the end of the day, it's the stuff of children's parties that's being sent over the United States to spy on um military institutions. It does it's it's just quite a, it has an element of silliness to it.
1: Yes, and it's like it's just a Quite big balloon for a children's party, like three times the size of an, a bus, but okay. Uh, and also, it did not only sort of uh, look at where Ameri- where Americans have their cows on fields. It also sort of flew suspiciously close over military um, facilities. So there's something going on. What I find a bit disturbing at the whole story is that it is it has such an impact on American foreign policy now that. Uh, the foreign secretary sort of canceled his uh, trip to China. And so a little balloon and such impact, we can just see how fragile our world is at the moment. I mean, people are so nervous that um, every this whole complex package of American-Chinese reconciliation after stressful times now they're trying to build more trust and then this little balloon comes in so maybe it's a mistake maybe it's uh, it's it was a, a sort of you know a malicious thing to happen. Um, we don't know exactly, and it's a bit disturbing. It was quite a reaction, wasn't it, if
0: Anthony Blinken says, I'm not going to, to China?
3: Uh, the uh, in the in At the end of uh, uh, Eisenhower's presidency in the 1950s, the man who had been very active in World War II wanted international peace and was setting up a huge peace conference to make everything work between the U.S. and the, the then Soviet Union. And an American spy plane totally run by a separate bureaucracy, was not supposed to fly over the Soviet Union, or supposed to circle around on the Turkish border, by chance it flew over the Soviet Union and was shot down. And that was the end of this uh, this chance for really terrific early nu- nuclear reductions. When people are in a good mood, think of a relationship. If if you're in a good mood, <laughs> you can do like accidental things and who cares. Aww. If you're in a bad mood, why did you move nope. the salt like that? No, I saw you, why did you, why? you moved that salt, didn't you? So you get hysterical.
0: Okay, a little bit of hysteria. Um, let's move on to the the uh, Tess, You're doing a really interesting uh, interview, aren't you? This week,
1: yeah. I spent uh, yesterday afternoon sitting with Catherine Belton, who wrote this terrific book, where she um, about Putin's uh, man, the circle around Putin, and how this web of the FSB, the Russian secret service, was built by him, and continued into the here and now to rule uh, Russia and considerable parts around him he would also like to rule. Um, And Catherine has written this book and she's now reporting for the Washington Post on Russia, doing ongoing investigations into the power circles and how this uh, year of war now has shifted the um you know who is who is starting to be slightly disgruntled with Putin's failed attempt to have a successful uh, uh, grab uh, uh, of the Ukraine. and it's quite interesting to speak to her because she still has very good contacts into the leading circles in the Kremlin.
0: How is that possible now? I would imagine that the Kremlin had shut up shop in terms of communication with the outside
1: yes and of course you know there's always you know you can't speak to putin himself of course <laughs> no. even with very good but she has spent many years in russia and has built a very good uh, network of contacts unlike me who also spent many years in russia as a correspondent and i do not have the same level of contact so we always joke about this that she's a serious uh, journalist and i'm not
0: i think we're Give you a bit of credit. Don't worry, Tessa. <laughs> um, the isolation of Vladimir Putin, David, is 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 understandable. But what one wonders what is actually going on inside the Kremlin.
3: The, uh, the strength of dictators is they can make quick, effective decisions. Um, uh, the weakness of dictators is everybody's terrified of them, uh, or sort of terrified, but they really don't like them. So the effect de- the effective decisions, uh, they make the decisions, often very little happens on the ground. And also if things are going wrong, famously, nobody tells them. They're terrified to tell them. So often the dictator is the last person to know. Think how deluded Saddam Hussein was about the uh, power of Western armies with the various Iraq wars, um, let alone the famous uh, World War II dictators. You get information really, 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 really wrong, but you're used to getting your way, or you think you're getting your way, so you become petulant. Uh, This thing I mentioned earlier about magical thinking for dictators, it works very well on the population, and it's wonderful for the dictator to think that. I can say things and get things done.
0: So tell us where, just when you were thinking about that, the fact that you have the the isolation of a dictator. I mean, I've never in a million years said that Donald Trump was bordering in that department, but there was this wonderful thing. Well, not this wonderful thing, but he was obsessed with watching the news and what people were saying about him. How much does that sort of constant um, availability of narrative and different opinion, how does that affect a dictator's um, point of view? I mean, we we heard that during COVID... Vladimir Putin, I'm not sure if this is right or not, locked himself away. That this was this was a man who absolutely self-isolated to the to the nth degree. We saw evidence with the big long tables. Do you think Putin will have had access to the outside world at all? Or will have chosen not to pay attention?
3: I think the uh, the second part of your question is exactly it. They often choose not to pay attention, because you don't want to be irritated by things that are unpleasant. We know ourselves in our ordinary lives, there's some things we just don't want to hear about. But who listens to our complaints? If you're a Putin in Russia, you say, I don't want to hear about this. Or you give an impression you don't want to hear about it, and it's not brought to your uh, uh, attention. You don't develop the skills to uh, follow uh, up in detail. The thing about the uh, uh, someone like Donald Trump being obsessed about the news, dictators often, almost by definition, they set up an establishment on their own. They're not part of a, a, a of a tradition, they're not the third or fourth or fifth generation. So they're utterly dependent on the crowd and their immediate support. That's why they're so suspicious, so suspicious. Someone in the House of Windsor, well, actually the House of Windsor has changed a little bit. Somebody in other royal families that are content, they don't have to be that suspicious. They're automatically going to get power.
0: Um- and looking at the, you know, your interview yesterday um Tessa when you when you were talking uh, to Catherine Belton and and she, we're examining now who could take Putin's place um so many reports of you know his his state of health and you know the fact that I wonder whether when are all these, these yes-men that David Badonis talks about, whether at one point they're going to say, no, we can't cope with this anymore. Who's on the cards to, to, to try and sort of step into him, step into his shoes? We we hear
1: a lot about the the head of Wagner actually coming to the helm, which is a terrifying prospect. It would be an ter- absolutely terrifying prospect. So um, Evgeny Prigozhin or uh, Ramsan Kadyrov or these sort of paramilitary warlords that are running around uh, in in this arena of 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 a political drama, but their chances to actually, you know, be leader in the Kremlin are, are small. It's just that they can destabilize everything that can happen when the numbers. Uh, of the dead uh, soldiers go up on the Russian side and people get the feeling that this war cannot be won and it will go on and on and on. So when this happens, then the amount of um, um, troops or, or sort of the troops that are still now under the control of Putin, you know, Prigozhin is not doing totally his own bidding. He's just very loud. And if someone is very loud, it's often because he's not so important also. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff going on on the battlefields that are absolutely horrifying. And these people are extremely dangerous uh, criminals. But so far, Putin still has the control over his army and also over these men. But that can change when the war goes on and and things are not as pleasant as uh, as they are still now for him in terms of power. But there are sort of other people that can replace him. And we have always talked about Nikolai Patrushev, who is the uh, the sort of former FSB chief and now um, secretary of the Security Council. And he's He's a hardliner. He's a hawk and he's very carefully, I think, playing his cards. So that's an option. But I would also, and that's what Catherine Belton would also say, like, you know, it's all speculation now. We don't know what happened. And usually something else happens than people have been talking about for years now.
0: Um, David, you've written books about leadership and, you know, how good people can also be leaders. Or is that possible or not possible in the context of what is happening in Russia how does this, what does history say about how this thing may play out?
3: Um, uh, history suggests that if you look at things going wrong in Russia, they're really likely to get even worse. <laughs> uh, the famous uh, uh, Eastern European pessimism is there for a reason. It's an adaptive trait. Um, it's it, Incredibly, as we see uh, in Britain, when Britain is under stress, how fragile democracy is, genuine democracy, not an oligarchy, it's only a few very particular circumstances in the last 150 or 200 years in a very few countries that have made this society that's vaguely designed to improve life for ordinary people and not be crazily violent to any weak person around you has had any degree of power. And even the British Empire for a while, although even when it was becoming a little bit more decent to people within Britain in the late 1800s, it wasn't always incredibly nice to people uh, uh, further away who had reduced military power. This is a long way of saying I'm really pessimistic about uh, Russia. Uh, It's a a very difficult position and the uh, traditions of the people uh, make it um, uh, hard to have a a, a calm, balanced, uh, back-and-forth government.
0: That's really unfortunate, because I was going to say, have you got a slightly more hopeful answer to that question? (laughs)
3: No. Uh, there's the you know they they often say that in South Africa when, when apartheid was coming to an end they said there's a uh, there's a magical solution where everybody gets down on their knees and God descends from heaven and, and solves the problems in South Africa and there's the realistic one where that doesn't even happen.
0: Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's let's look a little bit at what else is happening in the in the in the papers. Um, Tessa, you have a you have the Sunday Telegraph in front of you and you have a. a an article, which it's an essay, which frankly
1: is has left many of us slack jawed. Well, we are also talking about the Sunday Telegraph. Okay, I mean, so it's not a big surprise that they uh, bring that, or that Truss went to them to 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 launch her her bid to re-enter uh, civilian lives and explain her view of what happened. But it is an extraordinary piece of how she blames everyone for the disaster that she infected uh, on this just, country. Could you I just, mean, it's just briefly incredible. recap the disaster that happened? Well, she was uh, in power. She was in Downing. That South was for the disaster. 40, 45 <laughs> days. And that was enough to bring, um, you know, send the pound tumbling uh, her mini budget that she launched with uh, Kwasi Kwa who she promoted to chancellor, uh, was just within days. Uh, economic i can only say the end disaster for for britain and that on you know after already 12 years of uh, tory uh, politics which sort of strangulated um, services like the nhs and so after all this she now comes out and she says it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that who is to blame so Joe Biden didn't help help because he criticized her her budget and also David Cameron and Theresa May and Boris Johnson are a little bit to blame because they have uh, triangulated uh, uh, with Labour together on sort of you know they, they didn't help so she she sees herself still as this you know heroine of hard conservative. Visionary politics, and it's just amazing that she does not see how spectacularly she has failed.
0: It's a, it's an astonishing story, isn't it? Because
1: within the space of just a few days,
0: uh, here in the United Kingdom, the cost of people's mortgages soared. People are now reaping very, very real consequences of of of, of a forty day tax slashing approach which shocked everybody i love the fact that she blames president biden it's like it's, it's everybody but me people are really feeling what she did 40 you know in the, in the space of her 40 something days
1: well she what she t- tries to explain is that if she was uh that sh- that she thought when she came into office that her vision and her 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 program would be respected and that's what she can't get over with that 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 you know the bank of england had to interfere after she launched her plans for the mini budget to 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 keep the pound from from imploding and so it's quite astonishing that she thinks that if she would have been allowed to stay in office it would have been somehow be okay david you're smiling come come into the
3: debate <laughs> Um, uh, 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 the 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 lady who will always be associated with a uh, surviving lettuce in our future history books <laughs> gives me <clears throat> immense pleasure to talk about uh, there's a couple of things one is that uh, uh, blaming a, a left-wing uh, um, center is really important for her it's a single cause of all problems and th- then you're safe also on a more psychoanalytical psychoanalytic level somebody like her if she were to look in the mirror and say oh I made a big mistake you're um you're really uh, criticizing yourself. Also, in particular, remember she got rid of the uh, the, the groups that could assess the budget before it came uh, ahead? Uh, some of the top people in the Treasury and some of the top groups They were set up to specifically to assess it. Well, that matches her own life. Her her uh, dad's a, a, a well-known uh, math academic. Her mother, I, I don't know if she's an academic too, but highly educated. And the parents have written against her uh, quite often. They they really are not impressed with their daughter, and they've talked about you know if they were ever to vote uh, for the, her political party, it'd only be for the sake of the daughter. That so they were against the principles, and she knows that. Also, she was an okay student. She actually studied mathematical logic for a while uh, at Oxford in the nineteen nineties. She wasn't terrible at it, but she wasn't great at it. But she picked up a really uh, a dangerous lesson which is there's a single abstract principle, and if you apply it, everything follows from it uh, completely. That might apply in mathematical logic, not so well when it comes to uh, human behavior. And if you think about it, getting rid of her parents were always, as she was growing up and becoming conservative, telling her she was wrong and that was uh, incorrect and that it didn't work out and it wasn't kind. And when she finally had power, she pushed aside the parent sort of people the effective head of the treasury, the head of these research groups, the people who filled the role that in her past her her dad and mom filled. And what happened? It's kind of like giving a petulant child sheer total power, chaos ensues.
0: That's an astonishing I hadn't really thought about what her background um, yeah. says about her. I mean, one, one, one can only think that, that she'd be looking at it from a purely sort of financial or sort of policy related thing. But it, it is actually a family thing that you believe that she put it. It's all well, let's go back to the Philip Larkin poem. Um, <laughs> yeah,
3: you know, there's that uh, famous phrase that if it's a hysterical, it's historical. If somebody makes a small error, they can make a small error. If somebody makes an enormous, systematic, obvious error, it usually comes from something deep within.
0: OK, thank you very much indeed for that. Let's head to uh, Bangkok now for a roundup of what's making the news there. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Monocle's Bangkok correspondent, Gwen Robinson. Good afternoon, Gwen. Sorry, Kai. How are you doing? How's Bangkok well, looking I'm, this I'm afternoon? In,
2: well, I'm hanging in there through the clouds of smog, if uh, anyone's been following it. It's sort of, uh, we can discuss that. But uh, Thailand has just uh, come to the most uh, uh, most intense clouds of pollution that have has suddenly seen it come be declared the fourth worst air pollution in the world at the moment.
0: Guys, what's that like to live through? Because I know that they're, they're closing schools and they're closing offices,
2: aren't they? Well, you know, I'll probably get cancelled for saying this, but it seems to be a slight overreaction. It's nowhere near. I've been to Delhi, and as, as anyone who has even seen photos of Delhi, even on a good day, uh, it's not approaching that at all. Unfortunately, though, there is a kind of um, uh, yellowish tinge to the sky and some days the visibility is not great. So I think this has hit Thailand just as they are trying to assure tourists that you know everything's open, everything's wonderful. And uh, it's not so wonderful at the moment. And it is a seasonal thing, but apparently being exacerbated by very stagnant or still weather conditions. But honestly, it's affecting more than forty of the seventy seven provinces, and uh, the health ministry has reported that more than three hundred and fifty thousand people are reporting medical issues are uh, con- connected with the pollution. So you know it is a problem. it's annual or seasonal. um the government is again saying they're trying to do things about it, including artificial rainmaking and having meetings um and you know this this continues so um, you know, we've got elections coming back, and, and that might be an, that, doing something about air pollution might actually become a serious political issue in the coming months.
0: When are the elections happening? Just bring us up to date with that, uh-huh. would you, Gwen?
2: That's a very good question. I'm delighted I asked we it. <laughs> well, we don't have a date yet, but, um, you know, un, under, for various reasons, they really should be and, and have to be held uh, within uh, May. So a lot of people are speculating on early May. Um, and certainly, I mean, you know, campaigning season is out. We've had some extraordinary, uh, we've had extraordinary political unholy alliances and and rifts in the ruling coalition. You've got the deputy, pri- the very powerful, one of the the three deputy prime ministers, very powerful Prawit, uh, leaving, splitting with the, the prime minister Prayut, and they're now they're now running against each other. And there's a lot of speculation about. Uh, you know, various other candidates, including the daughter of uh, exiled Prime Minister Thaksin, who uh, has indicated very strongly um, that she uh, is interested in running for the Pua Thai Party. So, you know, it's shaping up to be quite a contest.
0: Um, just let's move on to, to, to the state of, um, well, there's, there have been quite a few protests in, in Thailand over the last few years, obviously, um, and you know, to, to various degrees of uh, success, one could suggest what's what's happening with that at the moment because it, it's something that the outside world hears about. But from the point of view of living in Bangkok, what is what is going on?
2: Yes, it's a very good point, and, and particularly raising it in the context of elections. Oddly, you know, a few years ago, we I think the world saw this massive tide of uh, youth unrest and angry students uh, flocking into central Bangkok and and shouting the sort of unthinkable, which is anti-royal slogans and uh, mottos. And uh, that was met by a swift crackdown. And uh, really, I think by last year, the student movement was all but, you know, smashed or at least uh, had uh, run out of steam. But it kept simmering along. And recently, I think uh, some very brave students... uh, Reignited all that by going on hunger strike, and and the country is really following the fortunes of um of uh, several young hunger strike. Well, they're all university age, um, who uh, have vowed not to um, stop their hunger strike until uh, remaining political prisoners are released. And uh, amazingly, last week uh, the Thai government did release a couple of um, young men who are in uh, in prison on les majeste or um, anti royal royal defamation charges but that has not uh, that has not persuaded the young hunger strikers and they are now in hospital uh i think they can do things like force feed people so uh, i am not sure they will die imminently but it's certainly uh escalating uh the temperature the political temperature so far not really feeding into any electioneering because everyone in thailand knows to leave that that very sensitive topic about the Royals alone.
0: Uh, which we shall do as well. Let's move abroad to a, other <laughs> oh, parts. A
2: <laughs> I, don't want to join, I don't want to join the, the people still in
0: I won't do that to you, Colin, I promise you. Let's head to Indonesia.
2: Ah, yes. Right. Would you like to know what's going on there?
0: Do you know? I couldn't think of anything I'd like to know more.
2: <laughs> I'm sure the listeners would too. Actually... <laughs> You know, to be fair, this is Indonesia's great diplomatic moment after some big successes hosting G20 uh, late last year and uh, the shuttle diplomacy by uh, Indonesian President Jokowi trying to make peace in Ukraine. Obviously, he wasn't successful, but you could see Indonesia trying to carve out a bigger role. And now they have just taken over and the last couple of days convened their first... uh, ministerial meeting for the Association of Southeast Asian Countries, uh, ASEAN Association of Southeast Asian Nations, rather. And uh, uh, Indonesia is the new chair under a rotating system. So for the next year, uh, Indonesia will be in the driver's seat. And this is, I should remind people, Jokowi's last year in office. So clearly, you know, his government is anxious to make it a very successful one. Um, unfortunately, there's a deep, deep, deep festering issue in ASEAN, which is what to do about Myanmar, uh, which is you know spiralling downward, as I think all our listeners know.
0: And and Jokowi has said, I think it was earlier last week, that Indonesia is going to send one of its top generals to Myanmar, to talk to the hunter to say this is how you make a successful transition to democracy.
2: Yeah, I thought that was quite cute actually, because I couldn't imagine anything more, you know, um, futile, really. These um, these generals who are driving this coup with absolutely unspeakable savagery and uh, daily wholesale bombings of villages and uh, we're seeing 1.5 million people have been displaced since the February 1, 2021 coup um, and it, it, there's no signs of abating. So I would say that if, you know, maybe Jokowi knows something we don't. There's some... Super, super diplomat general who is going to romp into Napidor and and tell uh, Min Online, the junta chief how it's done, but I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of. I mean, that that statement by Indonesia was met with um, sort of stunned silence really amongst uh, the other ASEAN leaders uh, um, because uh, you know these these are not. Uh, men who seem to be listening to anyone in terms of the the ones the generals in Napierdor.
0: Uh, finally, there's uh, you want to talk to us about food, I understand, and how the yeah. Th- how Thai how Thai people are getting very cross about the fact that they have the twelfth worst dish in the world.
2: Oh. oh, I'm glad you brought it up because this <laughs> seems to be exciting <laughs> Thais more than almost anything else. Um, I mean, you know, it's one of these gimmicky lists. I think I hope I don't get sued for saying that, but. Uh, this uh, food site, Taste Atlas, which ranks things, uh, ranks food and ranks dishes um, and ranks countries for the best and worst cuisines, um, has come out with a new list, which, uh, as you said, ranks one of Thailand's greatly loved dishes, which is Gang Som, as one of the worst dishes in the world, which is patently... I mean, it's so... I've, I've eaten it before. I don't think it's great, but I would certainly... Nothing... Nothing like the worst in the world, and if I mean I don't want to drive people to the site, but some of the the dishes on that list are are, are pretty uh, you know pretty, pretty confrontational and challenging. And when you look at a, a, a quite a reasonably tasty gangsom is a very sour pungent curry. It's watery, nothing like you know the curries we know, green chicken curry and and Massaman curry, curry, uh, sort of thick and coconutty in some cases. This is sour, it's extremely spicy and, um, you know, redolent sort of very strong fish paste or shrimp paste with a bit of herby omelette floating around in it as well um, and a sort of curious, intense orange colour. So I don't think foreigners do like it much and you don't see it on many, uh, you know, general Thai restaurant lists, but it's certainly very popular here. So, of course, Thai netizens have gone overtime in their fury um, at uh, being included. But, of course, this is exactly what Taste Atlas wanted. Was, you know, they've, they've gone viral. Everyone's sending the links, and every restaurants have decided to promote Gangsom specials this week. Um, so there you go. It might be the best thing that ever happened to Gangsom.
0: Thank you, Gwen. Gwen Robinson in Bangkok. You're joining. You're listening to Monaco on Sunday. Uh, David, just listening to that. You were furiously taking notes. Is that? Are you? Are you taking notes for a Gang some uh, recipe? You you fancy a bit of sour liquidy curry with a bit of herby omelette floating in it? She hasn't sold it. I must confess. Uh, uh,
3: uh, it's it's possible that my next visit to Thailand, I will order something different on the menu.
0: Have you not, Have you had that? Before? I'd have never tasted it. How about you? Would you? It doesn't
1: look so no. bad. But I quite like sour things. And the Herbie omelette's all right? Yeah, and uh, particularly sort of Thai food and every Asian food is very welcome in my case, but.
0: Maybe not song. I think maybe that's what we're all going to look for. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots
2: to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
0: Let's bring back our panellists. I'm joined by Tessa Shishkiewicz and David Badanis. A delight to have you around the table today. Um, just as we were we we're just preparing to come back here, um, David, you, you were looking at the front page of the Financial Times, which has... Uh, terrible image of a tank in a desolate landscape in Ukraine. And what you just said is, who would have thought we could still have wars like this?
3: Uh, this ties in with, uh, sadly, my pessimism about uh, uh, the Russian future, which is such a shame because uh, for a huge number of Russian people, uh, a better society and a better life is exactly what they want, full of energy and and really terrific in a small group solidarity. Uh, they're just often uh, let down by the power structures. Yeah, so this is the uh, the, the beast within mankind, the original uh, Adam, A D A M. That's uh, still there. We, uh, we. It was masked because of the uh, several uh, decades of U. Uh, uh, S. NATO protection and memories of what uh, warfare uh, in Europe does, but good memories often last for about uh, one human generation. The uh, the uh, letting Wall Street uh, 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 off of its constraints which were set up during the Great Depression in the 30s they were sort of let down, uh, uh, brought to an end about the length of a human life 60 or 70 years later. People kind of forgot and, and then indeed the, the banking crisis of 2008 followed.
0: And this is something that we're seeing in Austria, isn't it, um, Tessa? And also, I mean, we'll come to Germany in a minute which is so openly grappling with how it navigates a return to military um involvement but austria is really playing around in the in, in the sort of is, is skirting around this an awful lot isn't it
1: it is and i have you know being austrian i have an understanding for this um dreadful uh realization that we thought these type of wars men against men tank against tank trenches sitting there that this was over and now we find ourselves in this and it has a huge effect on on people now in germany and in austria because and in poland of course also you know in all these central european uh, states that have been battlefields for so many times and endured these wars that were such huge n- mistakes of nationalism and 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 country against country and particularly of course in germany and in austria with the second world war on our minds, but also as you see the success of this film now that the um, essay here in the FT is mentioning, uh, all quiet on the Western Front. It's such a, you know, it's so deep in our collective memoir how useless, in the end, these wars are, and what this essay also talks about. And I think it's really, really important to understand that that. That in Germany and in Austria we are realizing now that our pacifism that we grew up with our generation I'm 55 thinking that there won't be a war but that pacifism sometimes is not about peace and that's what we see now we have to be prepared to engage on this, the on the right side of this war and this pacifism is really difficult because it comes it also comes
0: it's often described as neutrality um, which many which, other, which others accuse you know the austrians and the germans are saying neutrality is actually actively trying to avoid a problem which which must be faced but it has been absolutely at the core of austrian and german identity for ever since the end of the second world war well, we
1: must not get involved yeah it's it's a very th- that's true but there's a decisive difference between germany and austria um you know Germany is part of NATO and uh, has been unified and and that was that with neutrality I mean since then it's a clearly a Western power uh, for for all and and of course you feel in Germany that some uh, parts of Germany like in the east um, are more can be seen as more pro uh, Putin also in parts. I mean, nobody's really pro-Putin anymore now, but feels that there should be more ceasefire than than war at, uh, efforts. Austria is really different. I mean, there was a really, really nice story this week that a colleague of mine wrote about um, uh, that Austria has 52 um, Leopard tanks, the German model. And, of course, Austria is not even thinking about sending it to the Ukraine because we claim we are neutral, uh, and I think it's a huge mistake to, to claim to be neutral towards such an aggression that we see coming from Russia. But that's the government's position. But we do train soldiers on these Leopard tanks in 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 Austria, and so we do train Hungarian soldiers how to use these tanks. So that's I find really ironic in this scenario that the hungarian soldiers are okay but ukrainian soldiers we can't train because mm. we are neutral so I, I really would hope that there is this year in the coming months when this war will be ever more desperately fought in the ukraine that at least the support structures could be strengthened also in austria to 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 help the ukrainians to defend themselves mm. and
0: and david austria's um uh, Defence Minister has said that it's important that Austria keeps channels with Russia open. Uh, She says it's important not to help but also to keep diplomatic channels open. Uh, We have a great history in Austria as mediators. It's a really difficult path to tread because if you are thinking... 10, 15, 20 years down the line, someone has got to talk to somebody eventually.
3: Yes. So there's there, there's parts of the Austrian uh, tradition. I spent a while with Bruno Kreisky uh, when I was younger and he was older, which is terrific on that. Uh, the, uh, Switzerland uh, has tried to do that uh, for a long time. Uh, I think the, 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 the reason for the shift, the, the reason the shift is uh, we're not seeing it quickly enough, is we know in our own lives, if you have a traumatic event, you recoil from it. And you adapt yourself to how to deal with that traumatic event. If you've been mugged or become poor or become rich or whatever it is, you adapt. And then you, you stick to the adaptation. and You kind of don't notice how the external world is changing. That the adaptation was maybe perfect for a certain period in time, but the world around you is changing. And entire countries can be like that. So at the moment, we're lucky enough or unlucky enough to see Austria and Germany beginning to reconfigure as their people are realizing the world is changing. Same thing with uh, Sweden and Finland with regard to NATO.
0: And it's a difficult thing. I mean, just looking at this article in the the Financial Times, uh, it talks about the idea, you know, that that Germany's collective conviction that armed conflict is inherently futile has been severely tested. Um, It's it's a, you know, it's a brilliant, brilliant article by Katja Hoyer. Um, Katja also mentions the fact that going back to the 1920s, which is post First World War, that there were intellectuals who were responding to the First World War with a a rejection of all wars. I mean, this is not the first time that this question has been asked, is it?
1: Of course. And it's also very important not to fall into, uh, you know, nobody's... Is is saying that war is a good thing. I think that's the crucial mistake that intellectuals in Germany who signed this famous letter in the spring to call for a ceasefire and not to deliver weapons. The crucial mistake is that we don't have a choice sometimes. And this is this war is being brought upon the Ukrainians and in a sense uh, upon the entire uh, Europe now and there must be a response that we have to keep thinking and not getting stuck in 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 in, 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 a, in in a misunderstanding of the 20s where of course we everyone was pacifist then didn't last very long in germany i mean there's such a, as you say yeah it's a, such a traumatic situation that these societies are in and i feel it in myself too but the good thing is that for example the german government You know, you you mentioned Bruno Kreisky, so this generation, Bruno Kreisky, Willy Brandt, they sort of tried to have this kind of entspannungspolitik with the Soviet Union, sort of appeasement, go there, talk, have a dialogue. Of course you do that. You know, there are plenty of people who are talking to Putin, like Macron and Scholz, uh, sort of. You know, it's not that, that you shouldn't talk to Russians or you shouldn't talk to the leadership also of war-leading nations. We need to find back channels for negotiations and to eventually achieve a ceasefire if it's possible. There's no question about it. But the other question is if we should sort of then say we are neutral, but we are not sort of talking to the Ukrainians or not helping the Ukrainians. And that's a that's the big mistake I think that is being done now in Austria not so much in Germany because thankfully uh, Olaf Scholz is actually moving maybe too slowly for some uh, uh, western other allies but he does move and Germany is a very important part also for the financial reconstruction of the Ukraine which will certainly be done from his part if he's still in power. Uh, but also the Green party in Germany is is very vocal with Annalena Baerbock um leading sort of you know this tight thinking process to to engage in in politics that are 2023 that are saying that you know you can't can't be pacifist and peaceful in the times of war
0: and do you think that will work this 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 sort of slow um David this slow progress to sort of playing effectively playing catch-up
3: uh, the the um, it, It's going in that direction. The question is, at what point does it stop? You don't want an overshoot. And again, it's uh, when companies, it's sort of like a somebody in midlife crisis. Uh, yes, you don't want to be pathetic and old and sit there and do nothing, but a guy does he really have to get a gold medallion and a chest wig and, and comb his hair over. So some countries, you don't want to go flip from the opposite of pacifism is wild aggression. No, the opposite of pacifism doesn't have to be an opposite. It could be, as you were saying, uh, a, a decent defense of people who are being attacked. Uh, no less, but no more.
0: And bringing us back to Europe and European unity, Tessa.
1: Yes, you can really see how the the Brussels is working on re- developing, you know, not only on sanctions but also on help and giving financial aid, and um, and the response uh, to that in Britain is. Yes, the headline here in The Guardian says in The Observer, Sunak's bonfire of laws risks all out EU trade war. And you think like, God, that's not 2023.
0: And David Badanis, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. That's all the time we have for today's Monocle on Sunday. Many th- thanks also to Tyler Brulé uh, and also to our correspondent in Bangkok, Gwent Robinson. Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week, but for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend.